Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, customer experience fans and professionals, welcome to Experience Points, presented by Avtex. I'm Joey Coleman, and we're so excited to have you join us. At Experience Points, you'll watch as our featured contestants answer questions about customer and employee experience and share their insight on how to make your interactions remarkable. We play a series of three games, and each time a contestant answers a question correctly, they win Experience Points. These points then turn into dollars for the charity of their choosing, thanks to a generous donation from our friends at Avtex, who transform customer experience through CX design and orchestration. I'm Dan Gingis, and I'd love to introduce you to today's contestant. She is the godmother of customer experience, the inaugural chief customer officer at Land's End, Caldwell Banker, Allstate, and Microsoft, literally invented the CCO position. She's an internationally recognized speaker and author of four books on customer experience, including her latest, Would You Do That to Your Mother? The Make Mom Proud Standard for How to Treat Your Customers. Welcome to Experience Points, Jean Bliss. How you doing, Jean? I hope you guys are hilarious. Thanks. It's so good to be here with you today. We are so excited for our conversation. We're so excited to hear your expertise and wisdom. You've been at this game for some time now, and obviously you've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. We know you're going to be playing for a special charity today, Jean. Can you tell us a little bit about who you'll be playing for and why you've decided to play for that charity? Sure, I'm playing for the Alzheimer's Association in honor of my dad, Vincenzo Giuseppe Cristando Lombardo. That's a name and then some. Let's play Fake or Fact. In Fake or Fact, examine three similar experiences. Some are real, some are not. Your task is to determine the fake from the fact. Each experience correctly detected is worth 100 points. Three correct answers will earn you 200 bonus points for a possible score of 500 points. Now remember, in Fake or Fact, all three might be fake, all three might be fact, or it could be a combination of fake or fact. So judge all three of them independently of each other. Are you ready to play? I'm ready! All right, let's do this. Now, Gene, I know you've written four great books on customer experience with memorable titles like Chief Customer Officer 2.0, Would You Do That to Your Mother, and I Love You More Than My Dog, which means that we thought you'd be very qualified to share your insights on book titles. In a world where more and more business books are being published each day, what can you do with your book title to stand out on the shelf? We all know who moved my cheese and duct tape marketing, but what do you think about these three examples of business book titles? Remember, we're looking for, are they fake or fact? We're gonna go through all three and then we'll get your answers. The first one is The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, the tell-it-like-it-is guide to cleaning up in business even if you are at the end of your role. The second book title is I'm out of here. The story of how I left corporate America and became a self-made billionaire. And the third title is Stick It, the history and social influence of the post-it note. All right, we're going to go back. Those are the three titles. Now it's time for you to decide which ones are fake and which ones are fact. So let's go back to the first one, the toilet paper entrepreneur. I heard you giggle a little bit there, Jean. What are you thinking about this book title? It's just really long title. It's, I don't know, a little too cute. I don't know. It just feels fake. I, I've never heard of it, but I haven't heard all of them. So fake for me. 
Well, we purposely picked ones that we were hoping maybe you didn't hear of because uh, that would make it too easy. So, all right, she's going with fake. And I don't know if it's it, uh, you know, toilet paper's been on people's minds lately, but let's see what the answer is, Joey. That is a real book, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And look at that. I think there's greeting cards now with that same image that say, you know, great fathers are harder to find than uh, toilet paper or something like that. Yeah, well, this book's actually written by a friend of ours, Mike McCallowitz, who's written a number of kind of catchy business books with catchy business titles. Mike's a great guy. So alas, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, not only uh, an engaging title, but an interesting book cover as you see the tail remnants of the toilet paper on the roll for those of you listening on the podcast versus watching the show live on video. All right. And we promise uh, that's the end of the bathroom humor for this episode. So here we go to the second title, Gene. I'm out of here. The story of how I left corporate America and became a self-made billionaire. What do you think? Well, gosh, now I'm questioning myself, but I was thinking that was fact, but I could be wrong again. (laughs) Well, you have a 50-50 shot of being both right and wrong. I'm out of here. It just, it felt more real. I'm out of here and here's how I, you know, rebuilt my life. So. Well, even though this book could very well be my autobiography, unfortunately, it is a fake title. (laughs) I'm a Monopoly billionaire. (laughs) All right, Gene, we got to get you, as we like to say in baseball, we got to get you off the schneid here and get you into the win column. So get really focused here. Put all your brain power on this one. We have our third book. It is called Stick It, The History and Social Influence of the Post-it Note. What do you think? I'm kind of getting flummoxed by made to stick and stick it. So um, it feels too close to made to stick. So I'd call that fake. All right, we're going to call it fake. Ooh, I hope we get some points for the Alzheimer's Association. Joey, show us the answer. It is fake. But here's the funny part about that title. I actually stole it from a book that is about potatoes. There is an actual book called The History and Social Influence of the Potato. (laughs) So... Somebody wrote that book and actually republished it 30 years later, an updated version. Go ahead and check it out on Amazon. But alas, the post-it notebook is fake. So thank goodness we got you some points and some dollars. So let's talk about these book titles, especially from the perspective of being an author, Gene. What goes into choosing a catchy book title? For me, I always want to have a what's in it for me. What am I going to get as a result of it? Uh, You know, Chief Customer Officer 2.0 how to build your customer-driven growth engine, I love you more than my dog, five decisions that drive extreme customer loyalty in good times and bad. It's got to be a payoff. Would you do that to your mother? You know, how to become a make mom proud company, how to grow your business. So my goal is I'm a giver. I always want to give back and help people do the work. So something in it's got to say, here's what I'm going to get from, from this book. One of the reasons we were excited to actually play this version of Faker Fact with you is I got to say, I've been a fan of yours for years. We've had the pleasure of getting to know each other. And I just love the way 
your titles stand out. They grab attention. Like, sure, the subtitle Subtitle. promises and delivers what they're going to get, but could you speak a little bit to the importance in marketing in general or in business in general of really grabbing someone's intention or, or being clever in the way that we message or position ourselves in the marketplace? You know, I think there's always got to be sizzle or or content behind the sizzle. But when we were doing the dog book, for example, I got dog book and mom book. That book was done by Penguin Random House. And the original titles were, you know, how to become a beloved company. And we're like, that's just too boring. And what we wanted to do was create emotion in the title and also get people to immediately want to jump into it. So I love you more than my dog. What? It immediately got an emotional connection and immediately was like, this is a fun book and I'm going to learn something from it as well. There's this combination, though, of sort of the sizzle and the substance. And so it's the title. And I I remember, I mean, I I loved the title of your book, Would You Do That to Your Mother? And you've got this 50s era black and white picture of of a mom that, you know, you couldn't possibly do that to. And yet companies do it all the time. But then when you read that book... It isn't just a clever title. It isn't just a clever picture, but it is actually there's there's so much substance behind it. Can you talk a little bit about the balance of that? You know, it's like the marketing of the book. But then when we get into it, like we got to have our serious side a little bit more. For me, it was all about easy consumption. I think that's the other thing that happens in business books sometimes is we in our quest to give so much, it becomes like, oh, my God, I got to slog through this thing. So the mom book was let's get you into it. Let's connect you humanly with the content, but let's make it short bursts of content you can read through, access, and kind of process. So each case study starts with the cartoon. I hired a cartoonist, you know, like, would you roll your mother into a hospital hallway and leave her there? Well, no, but you know, that's what it feels like sometimes. And then a case study, but the case study is one page. And then a mom lens to evaluate how you take that action yourself. So Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And then, okay, here's where I'm going to go. So that was a, I I always talk about doing a Vulcan mind meld. This whole book is 32 little Vulcan mind melds that you can do. When we think about the the little bit of time we all have to consume, that was really important to me in writing this book and and how it was packaged. Gene, I love it. You know, that whole idea of snackable yet actionable content is certainly a big trend in the world of content marketing. You've had the pleasure and the opportunity to work with dozens, if not hundreds of brands all around the world and some really major and impressive brands. I mean, we talked about earlier, you know, you being the the chief customer officer at Land's End and at Microsoft and at Allstate and Caldwell Banker. I mean, these are entirely different industries. At the risk of putting you on the spot, let's pull out of the book conversation for a bit and speak more to the importance of the marketing messaging or the sizzle meeting the product or the service that a brand delivers once someone decides to become a customer. And Joey, by the way, you're a master at the packaging as well. So kudos to you as both of you are. I think that we've all realized the importance of making the content accessible. What's important about our work We've got to help people do what I call live congruence of heart, what we know is right and habit. How do we operationalize that in our business? And so one of the things that I teach companies early on is 
what are the attributes that you want to be defined as, as people? You know, it's not enough to say to your people, everybody go be caring or everybody go be trusting. You have to prove that in your behavior. So if you're an insurance company, you know, what does your policy look like? Can people even read it? How do you translate that to how you trust your front line? What are your rules and policies like right now? As we're living in a COVID world, are you going back out to your people and asking what they need versus validating how you're doing. And that's really the difference that is, are you a company that grows through the admirable acts of how you conduct yourself in business? That's really what I try to teach people and guide people through. And it goes all the way back to my dad again, I won't say his name, but he had a little Buster Brown shoe store And he shooed a generation of their children and their children's children. And when he retired, a line of people three blocks long, you guys, stood to say goodbye to him, including Mrs. McCaskey with a Chicago Bears shirt signed by all the Bears. And so what's your three blocks long? How do you want to be remembered? In almost 90% of customer experience transformations, nobody does the upfront work to define who they are as people what customers' goals are, and then how you build that in your operating model and how you live that as leaders. That's the opportunity that we have in this work to make companies better and elevated in the marketplace. I love the concept of three blocks long, and I've read about it on your website and in other places, and it's such a good picture. I mean, I can imagine that those people lined up And we all wish for a three blocks long, right? We all wish that when we retire, that people have something nice to say about us, or at least a lot of people want to wish us well as they say goodbye. So Joey, tell us, how did Gene do? In this game, correct answers are worth 100 points. And Gene answered one of the questions correctly, which means she earned 100 experience points. These points convert into dollars, which means that Jean earned a $100 donation to the Alzheimer's Association. Congratulations, Jean. Let's play What Happened. In What Happened, watch to the first half of an experience story. Choose what you think happens next from four possible endings. Answer correctly for 500 points. If incorrect, you'll be granted an extra life and the opportunity to answer from the remaining three endings for 250 points. So today's story comes from Dennis Wakabayashi. Dennis is the Vice President of Customer Experience Solutions at RR Donnelly, and he's based in Plano, Texas. Here's the first half of Dennis's story. I recently refinanced my house and I had to call to discuss a number of different transactions as well as reorganize some things that were having to do with our accounts. Uh, It wasn't an easy task. It was a little bit complicated. I called the customer care number. I reached a guy named Jeff and guess what happened? All right, Gene. So what do you think happened next? Was it A, Jeff created an amazing experience. He knew all the facets about the products and options that were available for the refinancing and created a great outcome. B, he didn't seem to want to help and instead tried to upsell two new offerings. C, he wasn't sure what to do, so he passed Dennis on to another rep who then passed to a supervisor before things could get resolved. Or D, He appeared to solve the situation on the call 
But later, Dennis realized that he'd been overpromised and the whole thing fell apart. What do you think happened with this experience, Gene? Well, I would say it was either B or C, but I'm going to go with C. Gene, tell us why you are choosing C. I call it service roulette. Happens all the time. We get into someone they don't know. Um, they do the customer pass around pack or they don't have permission and we sit there waiting. It costs companies a lot of money and it frustrates our people because we don't give them the power to make the decision and to take care of the customer. And it happens a lot in call centers. So that seemed like a possible logical thing that could have occurred. Love it. So I totally understand why you might have been thinking that, Gene. But alas, that is not what happened. But the good news is you've got an extra life. Okay, so if it wasn't answer C and it wasn't the typical experience, what do you think might have happened? Uh, maybe D. So I have a question for you, Gene. You have spent all these years trying to teach companies how to do experience well. And yet on this question, you are immediately drawn to the answers that are poor experiences. I'm curious to know why your brain goes in that direction rather than to the one glaring exception, which is a positive experience. Well, we pen our people in. What happens inside of the silos in an inadvertent way to control their part of the business that they're managing is that they create rules and regulations that don't give our reps the ability to rise to the occasion, to be trusted with facts, and to be able to make the call. And I think there are some companies that are moving in the direction and um, taking the world by storm and giving their people, but it's still more in the minority than the majority. That's why we have so much work to do. I love it. All right. So you think that it was the rep appeared to solve the situation on the call, but later Dennis realized that he'd been overpromised and it all fell apart. Yeah, I mean, that may be from the sentiment of what he was saying, maybe that was it. You know, sometimes that's also what happens is people have information and, you know, they want to put you back together. And the other thing is, this is about how we're metricing people, right? We're metricing people on resolving the situation or getting off the call. And that little ticker is going across people's screens. So, so sometimes it's about how we're motivating our folks as well. Well, Gene, as it turns out, it wasn't C. But don't worry, you get one more chance at a second life here. If it wasn't C, what do you think might have happened in this scenario? Well, you know, let's go with what our work is to encourage people to be able to make the call, be the hero. Let's go with A. All right, so you're gonna go with the positive, amazing experience of the representative knowing all the facets about their products and options and creating a great outcome for Dennis. What happened was, Jeff was amazing. I mean, this guy, he understood all their products. He knew how to look into all the different facets of our accounts to make the necessary changes. So he was empowered, one, from a policy perspective. He obviously was empowered by his teams to make whatever solutions that were needed available to us. And in fact, the customer care was so good that I had a little sidebar with Jeff about the experience, just because we're all in the industry here. And I've been watching Wells Fargo for quite a while to see how their customer care evolution would take place over the past years. And I've got to say, they're nailing it. 
in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the complexities of the business environment, they obviously are leaning in towards the customer. Jeff was just a delight to work with. And I can't say enough good about the customer experience at Wells Fargo these days. Congratulations! Gene, you got it! Oh, I absolutely love it. You know, I totally understood your first answer of kind of the runaround, push one person to the next to the next. But as we can see, this was one of those beautiful examples where we got the call resolved in the first call because we had a trained and educated rep who knew the products inside out. Gene, can you speak a little bit to the importance of organizations really empowering and training their front line? You've had the chance to work with a number of enormous organizations on creating remarkable customer experiences. Could you talk a little bit about the practical nature of how that gets done? You bet. Well, you know, every relationship that we have with a company starts when a customer trusts a company. You know, we trust healthcare workers to take care of us. We trust realtors to help us. But the question is, are we trusted in return? And do we feel that the people who are honoring us are trusted? And so the foundation of building what I call a beloved or an elevated company in the marketplace is giving your people enough information to know the customer, uh, hiring them in the right way, again, in the congruence of your values, and then letting them make the call, preparing the reasons why people might need exceptions, and then proactively giving opportunities for people to decide in the moment the right thing to keep and grow that customer, move them to customer rescue artists and to people who create peace of mind. That's our opportunity. And that's the joy of our work. Oh, I love that phrase, customer rescue artist. What do you think about that, Dan? I think it's a great phrase. I think it might stick. What I thought was really cool about this example is this is a complex case. As as Dennis mentioned, there were a lot of facets. There were a number of different questions which required that the agent know a lot about a lot of things. And that does take training. But when it happens, it is such a great experience because let's face it, we don't want to call customer service. We're kind of hoping we don't have to. But if we do, we want it to be quick. We want the person on the other end to be educated. We certainly don't want them passing us around to a supervisor and making us wait longer. We want it resolved in a single call. And I think that's what Wells Fargo did really well here. They not only educated and trained their agents, but they also empowered them, as you said, Gene, to get to the solution quickly so that Dennis could go about his day. I'm wondering, because you've worked in a variety of different industries, as have I, and one of the things that I always think is interesting is that there are certain industries that customers want to engage with. I'm thinking of yeah. the, the Starbuckses and the Disneys of the world. And then there are certain industries, and we've both worked in them, insurance, financial services, where Again, nobody wakes up in the morning hoping to talk to their insurance company. So how do we train our agents and our frontline staff to sort of appreciate and put themselves in the shoes of the customers to appreciate the fact that this customer doesn't even want to be calling us? Well, I think that a lot of it also, uh, Dan, is about helping people have an elevated role of the work that they do. For example, a claim agent, when I was at Allstate, one of the things we told them was, you're not a claim agent. You are a peace of mind artist. I love the word artist for some reason. And it's also about recognizing that you have an opportunity to impact the memory of that person and not only what you do to them, but how they feel. 
So there's two ways to turn down a claim if you have to. One is by telling the customer how dumb they are, walking them through the mistakes they made, chatting back simply policy information. The other is starting with a life, asking how they are, making sure they understand what happened and coaching them on how to have a better outcome next time. In both cases, you turned down the claim, but in the second one, you did it with your humanity, your humility, and you left people with a memory about the characteristics of the company and how they enable their people to take care of customers. And I think when you put people in a position to rise, to be a part of something greater than themselves and move them out of executing tasks to delivering an experience that really improves a life, you will keep the best people, you will attract better people, and you'll grow as a result of it. Gene, I love it. You know, so often on Experience Points, we talk about how customer experience and employee experience are completely intertwined. And the better the employee experience, the better the customer experience. And I, and I think you speak to that beautifully as far as the empowering them to come forward with their humanity and connect on a personal level. You know, when we think about different industries, often I think companies will say, well, we're really good compared to the other folks in our industry. When the reality is, that's not who your customers are comparing you to. They're not benchmarking you against the other insurance companies. Could you speak a little bit to what it takes as an organization to benchmark against the top customer experience providers, the Disney's, you know, the Amazon's, the folks that are well-known going beyond and above and beyond for their customers, how we can compare ourselves to those brands and learn from them as opposed to just saying, well, we're the best of the not so good. Yeah, no, it's a really good point, Joanne. The thing that also strikes me is I, I have a lot of B2B clients, large software organizations, manufacturers, etc. And and what we're finally recognizing and inside B2B companies, for example, is they're recognizing that your B2B client is a B2C client. And so their standard of life and I call it building a respect delivery machine is through the companies that are delivering to them. And so this notion of do you know your customer? Are you respecting their time? Are you orienting your operation around them? It's part of the challenge is we can't all be Zappos, but we can find parts of Zappos you know, that really line up with our operation and learn from that. We're not all going to be the Ritz-Carlton, but there's things we can pull from it. The other thing I think is when companies don't do the work to be deliberate at the beginning about how they wanted to be defined, you know, not as I'm a good person and yes, you can trust me, but do the outcomes of what we do signal to the customer that we are a caring company, that we care about you? Without doing that work, Joey, you can't operationalize that in who you hire, in how you align your data, in how you deliver and in how you reward your people. And that's what's missing is the deliberateness of being really clear. Instead, we get survey results and other things and we play whack-a-mole. Let's fix 15 problems. That gives us a false positive because we've got a laundry list of stuff we're doing, but the customer's not feeling it. So I think this notion of really recognizing the human on the other end of our decision and reorienting our operating model and our people model around it has got to be where our work really is. And that's the hard part of the work. I want to touch on two things you said, Gene. First of all, 
I probably, the question I get the most often, uh, particularly uh, after speaking, is someone from a B2B will come up to me and say, hey, you know, all this customer experience stuff is great, but does it really apply to B2Bs? And my favorite answer, although it's a little bit sarcastic, and uh, Joey knows that that every once in a while I can be sarcastic, is that all depends, are you marketing a product to humans? And then there's like this pause, like, did he really ask me that? And it's like, well, if you're marketing to humans, then they are consumers in their other lives. And that is what you're being compared to. The other thing I wanted to point out was, and relatedly, is you brought up Amazon. And I've always been surprised at the disdain that so many companies have for Amazon. And I think it really comes down to jealousy, to be honest with you. Because the reason why Amazon is as big and and talkable as it is, is because it does so many things right. And yet, there's plenty of room for small businesses and mom and pops to thrive in an Amazon world. I'd like to believe that your dad's shoe store would still be thriving in an Amazon world because what he delivered to his customers, Amazon doesn't do. That's not what they're good at, right? And they can't do it. I've talked before about the board game store in Chicago where you can go in and sit down and you know, pull a game out of the board game library and play it before you buy it, which Amazon can't do. So it's about thinking like the companies that do this really well, not necessarily copying them and trying to be them. Your dad didn't need to have overnight delivery or same-day delivery or whatever it was because that's not what was expected of him. And so can we talk about, you know, sort of in the same general theme of who is our competition? What do we do about these giant companies when we're a smaller company that, you know, we think, well, gosh, we can never be like Amazon. Well, I think the thing is about focus. One of the things that's important about a company that really thrives is they're really clear about what they will do and what they want to do and about what their path is. You know, one more example of Amazon is Stephanie Miguel, who runs or ran or built Amazon Prime, had two key metrics that she looked at. Do we have what the customer set needs and do we get it to them when we say we're going to get it to them? What we do in our businesses is we start looking at so many things and we lose focus. So clarity of purpose, uh, Dan, becomes really, really critical and also reorienting the business to the customer's life. We were working with Bombardier Aerospace, for example, the part of the company that sold private planes to um, high wealth individuals. And again, this is a bigger company, but it, it gets to the point of clarity. So as we were building the customer goal map, I call it a goal map, the sales and service part, people said, oh, we want to deliver the sales and service experience. And they said, does your customer really want to have a sales and service experience? No, they want to have a keep me flying experience. As soon as we reoriented the work around the customer's goal and what the customer's trying to accomplish, now everybody can line up behind that without a lot of explanation. But that clarity took a while to get to, Dan. And a lot of companies, again, I know I keep beating the drum of thinking about this ahead of time. It's that angsting and thinking and wondering and deciding and being really clear. And, you know, I grew up at Land's End for 10 years where it was around, we imagine the UPS driver handing you the box and had your kids uh, Christmas present in it. We imagine the feeling of pulling a turtleneck over your head for the first time. That deliberate thinking is what's missing. That's the opportunity. That's where we get joy out of being able to craft an experience that nobody else can deliver. Fantastic conversation here with Jean about all the things we could do. Let's recap how she did playing What Happened. 
Well, Joey, in this game, correct answers are worth 500 points. Now, while Jean didn't get it correct on her first try, she used her extra life and answered it correctly, which means she earned 250 experience points. These points convert into dollars, which means, Jeannie, that you earned a $250 donation to the Alzheimer's Association. Nice job. Let's play Think Fast. In Think Fast, you will have one minute to answer five experience questions. For each question, you must quickly choose between two possible answers. Correct answers given before time runs out are worth 100 points. Five correct answers will earn you 500 bonus points for a possible score of 1,000 points. All right, this is the fastest minute on the internet. I can't wait to play this with you, Gene. So we are going to be talking about a study today that coincidentally was authored by the godfather of customer service himself, Shep Hyken. So we have the godfather of customer service and the godmother of customer experience all in one show. This is amazing. And his uh, study was called the 2020 Achieving Customer Amazement Survey, a special report on customer preferences, habits, and wants to help you create an amazing customer experience. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. Joey, give us 60 seconds on the clock. What percentage of customers are willing to shift brands because of a bad experience? Is it 60% or 96%? 96 as a customer's wealth increases, are they more or less likely to be willing to switch brands? More. Did the majority of people think customer experience had improved or not improved over the past year? Not improved. Do more customers want to resolve their customer service issues via phone or self-service? Self-service. And are more customers interested in customer service or convenience? Oh, because it's Shep, I'm going to say convenience. I love two things about that, Gene. Number one, that may have been the fastest version of Think Fast we've ever had. You had a lot of time left on the clock. I love the speed of your answers. But the thing I love the best is you decided to play the player, not play the game <laughs> on that last question. Let's see how that turned out for you. Well, Gene, we asked you what percentage of customers are willing to shift brands because of a bad experience. You said 96%, and the answer is 96%. Then we asked you, as a customer's wealth increases, are they more or less likely to be willing to switch brands? You said more. The answer is more. All right. Two for two. We are rocking and rolling. Let's go to the next question. Did the majority of people think customer experience had improved or not improved over the past year? You said not improved. The answer is not improved. All right. We are three for three. Perfect score so far. I hope we continue this streak. Do more customers want to resolve customer service via phone or self-service? You said self-service. And the answer is, phone. Oh, still, I don't know why people like the phone so much. So frustrating. I would have said self-service too, so I'm with you there. The thing I always say is people want self-service until they don't. Are customers more interested in customer service or convenience? You played the player, and because you knew it was by Shep Hyken, you said convenience. The answer was convenience. 
right. <laughs> Very good. I know that chef. Godmothers and godfathers uh, tend to hang out a lot. I feel like this is a variation on a Disney movie. We've got a magical fairy godmother, a mystical fairy godfather. This is fantastic. Well, let's jump in and talk about that issue of convenience. A former guest on Experience Points, Shep Hyken, and his research point to convenience Becoming the controlling desire for experiences, I don't want to make you challenge Shep necessarily, Gene, but do you agree with that or disagree? Do you think convenience is becoming kind of the go-to answer when it comes to customer experience? Well, you know, he uses the word convenience. I use the word respect. What I mean by respect is, is it right for me? Are you respecting my time where I want something Are you building your company based on customer time or company time? So convenience and respect to me are correlated. So I I understand why he's getting to convenience. Yeah, it's interesting that you compare those because I usually use the word simplicity. And I quote my idol former Cubs manager, Joe Madden, who says, doing simple better, do simple better is his instruction in baseball. And I think it so much applies to business as well. And when things are simple, then they are also convenient and therefore the customer's time is respected. So I think it's all connected. I was particularly interested in the question that we both missed, which was this phone versus self-service. And the only thing I can come up with, because honestly, I mean, I do not know very many people that want to be on the phone anymore. I actually should have gone with my gut. And instead, I was trying to kind of think about what the answer might have been. But here's what's happening is... As technology is swinging so far, the pendulum, companies need to have a blend of high-tech and high-touch. And sometimes it's the accidentally quest to make everything automated that we yearn for a human voice. We, we really yearn. And the other thing is that joke I made before, which is people want self-service until they don't. And once they get a human on the phone, that's why actually when call centers say they're worried about their purpose in the world, their purpose is growing. Because when you get to a human now, that human better be the right human. They better have light behind their eyes, as we said at Land's End. That's what we hired for. And they better be able to make the call. Gene, I love it. You know, you are such a pro when it comes to a turn of a phrase. You know, in all the (laughs) games we have played together, there have been, you know, dozens of little phrase nuggets that you have dropped on our viewers and on our listeners. And it's so fantastic. The light behind their eyes. Could you speak a little bit to how one goes about hiring customer experience team members, whether that's a call center rep or someone on the marketing team or whoever it may be that's going to be delivering customer experience throughout the entire customer journey? Do you think we can find enough people with the light behind their eyes or do corporations have a responsibility also to bring some light to the conversation with how they treat their employees? I couldn't agree more. You know, what's interesting and fascinating to me is the best companies do their version of customer uh, humanity tryout. For example, the CEO of um, International House of Pancakes takes her, uh, or when she was in the role, took her executives to the Pancake House for breakfast. You know why? I'm guessing she wanted to see how they interacted with the staff. With the white people. She wanted to see how they treat the white people. 
Tony Shea is a good friend of mine at Zappos. I'm sure you guys know him too. When you go to Zappos, you get in that uh, van and that woman or man in the sneakers and sweats driving the van is actually part of the interviewing loop. They check to see, do you sit in the front of the van or the back of the van? Are you acting as the hoity-toity passenger or are you engaging? Southwest, my good friends there, they've done a customer service tryout for many, many years. Headsets.com is a perfect example. They put you on a customer service kind of process where you go through an incubation period, they watch and they listen, and they don't listen for just how you did it, but what you did, but how you did it. And so I think what's important is I beat the drum of deliberateness, but the best companies are really clear about the values, and then they get really serious about they're going to hire for those values. And again, that Land's End story that keeps on giving, the people that were on the phone at Land's End got up at four in the morning and hate the fields and plucked eggs from the underbelly of warm hens before coming to answer the phone. And, and that's why, yes, we trained them. There was so much information, but then we said, be yourself, be a human. There is no talk time. Be a good person make the call. And that takes trust and bravery by leaders. So it's this kind of complete approach that you've got to take. And we inadvertently break it into little snippets. Talk time, hire the right people, do an NPS survey at the end of it. And that is not how you become an elevated company. You know, so that's kind of, I think when you have good humans with the light behind their eyes, People will want to talk to you. We had people from New York calling us in the middle of the night just to talk to our people because they were like from New York in the middle of the night. (laughs) You know, especially now, nothing replaces human interaction. It's something that we all crave and value. And I think the companies that are finding a way, even despite all the technology enhancements and self-service, they're finding a way to create a human connection are the ones that are winning over and keeping customers. In the mom book, one of the things I say is, you know, yes, if you're lucky, there's an app and your um, refrigerator repair man or your cable guy, you can track when he or she'll get there. But it's if they put booties on their feet and how they welcome you and how they navigate your furniture that tell you the kind of mom they've got. So high tech without the humanity to blend it is just high tech everybody else can have. Oh, so true, Gene. So true. Well, Dan, let's recap how Gene scored playing Think Fast. Well, Gene, in this game, correct answers are worth 100 points. And you answered four questions correctly, which means you earned 400 points. Now, these points convert into dollars, which means that you earned a $400 donation to the Alzheimer's Association. Congratulations. Yay! Thank you! And let's do a final tally for how Gene did playing all the games here at Experience Points. Playing Faker Fact, Gene earned 100 experience points. Playing What Happened, she earned 250 experience points. And playing Think Fast, she earned 400 experience points. Gene, you kept getting better as it went along. I know, I had a slow start. If I'm doing my math correctly, Gene earned 750 experience points, which converts to a $750 donation to the Alzheimer's Association. Congratulations and thank you so much for playing with us here on Experience Points, Gene. Well, thanks to both of you. This is such great work you're both doing and it's just a pleasure to be a part of it. 
That concludes this episode of Experience Points. Check out more games with Gene and our other celebrity contestants at experiencepointsgame.com. That's experiencepointsgame.com. We'll see you soon for more examples of remarkable customer experiences here at Experience Points, presented by Avtex.